Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey everybody, welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is a show that helps you become a more effective student. And before we begin today, I just want to say thank you for listening to the show and giving me the opportunity to hopefully make your day a little bit more interesting. Hope it's off to a good start so far, but hopefully I can make it even better. Now, before we start right now, if any of you happen to have like magic powers, maybe you could just reach through your phone or whatever you're listening on and pinch me just so I can make sure that this is real. Because today on the podcast, I have the opportunity to have a conversation with the U.S. Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan. And in this show, we talk about his goals for improving the quality of education across the entire nation. We talk about selecting a college, methods of paying off student debt, income-based repayment plans, all that kind of stuff. And we also talk about how he actually became the Secretary of Education. I'm always interested in seeing how people got to where they are, and I know you guys are too, so I'm going to quit this intro, and we're going to get into the episode uh, proper. Before we do that, if you want to find the show notes to this episode with some of the links to resources he mentions in the interview, you can find all that good stuff over at CIGpodcast.com. The episode 75 link on that page will get you to the summary, the links, and information on how to review the show on iTunes if you so desire. By the way, I've said it already, but thank you guys so much for the reviews that pushed us over 50. You guys are awesome. All right, let's get into this interview. Mr. Secretary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity as well. So I actually get a lot of questions from my readers. Uh, I was able to kind of ask them for questions beforehand, and I have questions of my own. But I know one of the things that you wanted to focus on was how to select a college. And interestingly enough, a lot of my readers and listeners are not in college yet. So what are your thoughts on college selection dealing with like the rankings people take into consideration and also the uh, considerations of trade schools and community colleges versus traditional schools? Well, first, I think it's just so important that young people and their families really take the time to become informed and think about this. And I I think probably other than who you uh, eventually marry, who your spouse is going to be, this is one of the biggest life decisions that people make. And it's interesting. I think people often do a lot more research about what car they're going to buy or you know whatever than they do what college they're going to go to. There's 7,000 institutions of higher education. They're public. They're private. They're for-profit. There's big. There's small. And so there's a tremendous range. We probably have you know easily the biggest diversity of options uh, anywhere in the world. But so often I think people either don't do the homework because it can be intimidating or they pick the wrong school for the wrong reasons. So thinking about fit, you know, size is important, I think. Some people love really big schools. Some people, uh, like myself, would have felt a little lost in in a big school and, you know, something smaller is a little bit better. Um, Whether you want to be close to home or right at home or whether you really want to get away. And sort of what your family's situation is and, you know, financial resources, those kinds of things. But then sort of really digging in, understanding the financial piece of this, you know, what's a grant, what's a loan, not what does one year cost, what does four years cost, what are graduation rates like, what are job prospects at the back end. 
I just think there's a whole series of questions that young people should be asking themselves. And there's absolutely a right fit for everybody, but it takes a little bit of, of homework uh, to get there. Um, I also always want to make sure that your, your viewers, your listeners, uh, your readers know uh, there's a huge amount of financial aid. So college is still too expensive. And I'm sure we'll get into that. We're trying to make college more affordable. But we put out $150 billion in grants and loans every single year. And so when I go talk in disadvantaged communities, I always say, I don't care what your family has or doesn't have. If you work hard, if you get good grades, college will be affordable for you. So that should not be the thing that stops you. There's a lot of different things that folks should consider, but it's a very, very personal choice at the end of the day. I would honestly spend less time on other people's rankings and other people's perceptions and more really just trying to get a sense, am I comfortable in this environment? I heard something interesting from uh, actually from a student where his thinking was not what not what um, I enjoy this on my best day, but on my hard days, on a bad day. <laughs> an interesting way to put it, because we all have bad days. You know, good, good day. You're happy anywhere on a bad day. Is this still a place where I'm going to be happy and comfortable and supported? That was a pretty interesting take on it. So I think those are the types of things that young people should be asking and uh, getting a high level of confidence that they're making the right choice for the right reasons. Yeah, that's an excellent point to make. And I love the emphasis on the back end as well, because one of the things that I think a lot about is student debt. And, um, you know, I try to help students like do the math on what their actual payments are going to be after they graduate, depending on what they take. So for students that maybe don't know as much about what their financial aid options are, how can they go about securing aid that is uh, not needing to be paid back scholarships, grants, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, there's a huge amount of information on our website. People should check that out. The key, obviously, is filling out that FAFSA form, the financial aid form. We tried to make that a heck of a lot simpler. Uh, the average time is less than half an hour. It's like 28 minutes or something. <laughs> and uh, That's the one thing. Again, you'll never do in your life. You spend half an hour. That unlocks. That's the key that unlocks access to that $150 billion in grants and loans. You'll never have that kind of opportunity any half hour the rest of your life. So that's, that's a must do. And again, as much as you can get grants and scholarships, the better. On the loan side, um, debt is too high now. and It's something I worry about a lot. But it's really interesting when you look at the data and sort of get past the anecdotes. The problem, big picture, isn't so much the folks with the, the greatest debt, because those are often folks in graduate school, law school, medical school, who are going to do quite fine. Those who are defaulting on debt mean they can't handle it. Um, you're three times more likely to, to default if you don't graduate. Mm. So the key, the, the worst possible scenario is to take out debt and not get that diploma, not yeah. to get that degree. And so I'm focused a little bit you know, less on the absolute, the absolute dollars in terms of debt. You obviously want to try and minimize them. But are you going to a place where you're going to graduate? Are you going to be successful? And if you do that, the odds are much better in your favor long term. Right. And I think one of the you know, one of the best ways to make sure you graduate is to be sure you're planning correctly, you know, signing up for classes on time and building strong study habits. Um, another contributing factor, though, is that a lot of students often don't know what they want to do, which can cause major changes and extending time that they're spending in school. So for a lot of the students that are emailing me saying, I don't know what I want to do at all. Should I go to a regular college? Should I look at other options? What are your thoughts on that? Again, it's just a very, very personal thing. And, you know, I still don't know what I would do when I grow up in life. So to, think, <laughs> to expect a 17 year old to have this their life plan mastered is a little bit unrealistic. But you should go to a place that is strong academically. You should go to a place that's interesting to you. Again, whether it's a four-year community colleges are fantastic. We've done a lot to promote them, put more resources behind them. They are much, much cheaper generally. And if you go to a two-year community college, you can then transfer to a four-year, or you can go into the world of work. So there are lots of options out there. There's no, no right or wrong there. 
And it's just trying to go to a place, again, where you're going to be su- supported, where you're going to be successful. And whether or not you have your life plan, that is honestly secondary to me. Um, you want to try and get through. If you want to change majors, that's not the end of the world. You should have that flexibility. But there is a lot of evidence that sort of speed towards degree, you know, taking classes that accumulate you know, towards, the, towards a credential rather than a bunch of random classes. That's obviously the right thing to do. Okay. So just do your best to early on figure out a plan, try to stick to it. And then once you graduate, you can sort of look for other options if you need to move. Yeah. And again, if you want to change majors, that's again, that's fine. Uh, Just you have to make progress towards getting that degree. And I just can't emphasize that enough. If you get a college degree, it's like the best thing you can ever do for yourself and your family. If you go to college, but don't get that degree. um, Obviously, some college is better than no college. But the, the real goal is to get across that finish line, walk across the stage with that diploma in hand. And uh, particularly for first-generation college goers, that just opens up an entirely new world of opportunity. And I would ask, hard, again, ask hard questions of the colleges. What's the graduation rate for students like me? Um, many colleges focus on access, which is important. That's, a, for me, a starting point. That's good. The goal is not access. The goal is not to get in the door. The goal is completion. So what kinds of studies, you know, what kinds of supports do they have? What kind of mentoring programs do they have? What kind of tutoring programs do they have? And there's honestly a huge range of colleges, some of whom take that responsibility very, very seriously, and some, frankly, that don't. And when I led the Chicago Public Schools before I came here, we obviously had a number of great, you know, colleges in the Chicagoland area, and we tracked pretty carefully kids with identical GPAs and very similar test scores, so, you know, roughly the same ability level, they had wildly different outcomes depending on which university they went to. So we started to, frankly, steer kids towards certain universities and away from others that we didn't think were as serious about helping them complete. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that actually, I want to just kind of emphasize that point. A couple of episodes ago, I did an interview with somebody who was a professor, a tenure professor at two different universities. What she found out when she went to her first graduate program is that department and program had almost no support for finding jobs and mentorship and career support. So it's incredibly important to look at that when you're trying to select a college. That's a hard, again, those are hard things to think about at 16 or 17, but we've tried to provide a lot more information, a lot more transparency, you know, worksheets around financial aid, but also around, you know, majors and completion rates. And the more you can inform yourself, it's just going to put you in a position to make a better choice uh, when you ultimately do go to school. Right. So, I mean, I know you have a huge emphasis on completion, Uh, with this, uh, you know, with regular universities, and there's like a huge signaling value for having a degree. But in recent years, like MOOCs and online courses and self-teaching resources have become incredibly useful in their own right. So what do you think the, I guess, the role of those for a university student is? Yeah, I think it's a whole new world of opportunity. So it's very, very exciting to me. You know, there's no one magic answer. There's no one silver bullet. What people are finding uh, is they evaluate MOOCs. It makes a lot of common sense to to me, intuitive sense, that having that opportunity online is extraordinarily helpful and can create, you know, chances to learn from peers across the globe, which you wouldn't have before. But having some personal contact, again, having support from the professor, having study groups. And again, they can be virtual study groups. They don't have to be in person. But the human piece of this remains very, very important. But the chance for kids on a Native American reservation or rural remote area, or in Afghanistan or Pakistan or wherever to take classes from professors at you know, Harvard or MIT or you name it, that's extraordinary. It's a life-transforming opportunity. And I think we see a lot more of this as we go forward. Yeah, I think it's absolutely amazing. And honestly, I think that's also just going to increase the ability for students to make it to actual real colleges. 
It's exactly. And again, for me, it's not one versus the other, this versus that. And I think these things supplement each other. And you're seeing folks with college degrees. You know, I, I wish I, I should probably spend some time doing it. folks with college degrees going back just to take something to learn and just, you know, so there's lifelong learning. And MOOCs are just a great way to do that. But I've, I've talked to folks who lead MOOCs, again, the, these communities, these virtual communities that get built um, are pretty amazing. And, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago just didn't have those kinds of opportunities. And you get remarkably talented, committed young people literally from all over the globe working together um, in, a, in a world that's shrinking, in a world that's becoming flatter, not just the academic piece of this, but the relationships and the networks you build, I think could be really, really helpful uh, going forward for young people. Yeah. So speaking of MOOC leaders, I, I watched an interview that you did with Salman Khan a couple of years ago. And one of the interesting points you made was uh, this this idea of like seat time being the driving factor of your progression through college versus competency. And you mentioned a uh, University of New Hampshire program that was kind of trying to switch over. So do you know how the progress is being made with that program and other programs? And, and for me, it's not just applicable on the college side, but in high school as well. And you sort of think about should your proof that you know algebra be sitting in a class for nine months? Yeah. <laughs> your proof that you know algebra mean that you can demonstrate your knowledge, your competency in algebra and move much faster if you're ready. And what's been constant historically was the time to, to get to a point and what we have to, that's got to become the thing, the variable. And if some people get there in half the time or a third of the time, great. If some people need more time, that's fantastic too. There's no value judgment. But it's trying to, this idea of personalized learning. And so, yes, there are a number of colleges that are trying to move towards competency-based learning. We're actually funding, we call them X-site, experimental sites. We're funding places that are doing some interesting things. And again, at the end of the day, for your life and what employers are looking for is do you have the skills and knowledge to be successful? And, you know, having sat in a class for nine months doesn't demonstrate that you know it or you don't know it. And if we could get to that point saves people time, saves people energy. Folks that are you know, better or have a mastery expertise can move faster. And folks that need a little more help, that's great too. Let's give them more help and help them get to, again, the goal is to get them across the finish line. And the time should be the variable here, not the constant. Yeah, I absolutely love that idea in any school that's working on self-directed programs. I know this this idea is something that the kind of the unschoolers and people who say don't go to college champion so much, but I want to see it more within the educational system because there are yeah. people who do need the support structures in that context. The other population I think a lot about is not just, you know, 16, 17, 18 years going to college, but I think about all the folks coming out of the military, you know, mm. folks who served in Afghanistan and Iraq and look at all their skills, look at all their leadership, look at their life experience and to act like they have to sort of start from scratch when they go back to school. That just doesn't, again, make intuitive sense to me. Yes. Let's figure out what skills they've accumulated while they've been serving our country, let's speed their time to degree so they can get out to the world of work and help support their family. Definitely. Yeah. I actually know people who had legitimate jobs in the military and they get out and those credentials don't count because they have to get them in the civilian yeah. world. So it, it makes no sense. You know, they're, they're all learned so much, but so much more responsibility than any of us to act like we don't <laughs> value that life experience. Again, it just, it, it does, it does our country a disservice, frankly, exactly. not just not individuals. Right. So you've done a lot of work to increase the options for student loan repayments, like income-based repayment programs. So what are some of the options that students have with at least federal loans? Yeah. So, so a couple of things. Obviously, where folks can consolidate loans, we want to provide assistance there. As you said, we're moving much more to income-based repayment plans. Again, mm. not saying you have to do it. We're seeing a pretty significant uptick in the number of young people taking advantage of that. Um, but there's still a lot of people, I think, who could benefit who haven't. 
So that's really on us to better get the word out and to make it easier. And we have to do uh, a better job there. We're seeing uh, pretty significant increases this past year. So I like the trends, you know, but a long way to go. But at the end of the day, I, I do worry that you want young people, you know, buying homes and buying cars and starting the businesses and think about starting a family. You don't want their debt to prevent them from participating in the economy and, you know, being an entrepreneur and following their dreams and following their passions. So we've done some good things on the back end. I'm really, really proud that we put an additional $40 billion into Pell Grants. That was huge without going back to taxpayers for a nickel. We went from about 6 million Pell recipients to 9 million, many first-generation college goers. Um, But we have a long, long way to go to make college more affordable and to have every young person in the nation think that college is for them. What I really worry about is in some places there's a perception that college is for rich folks. It's not for people like me. And that's a problem because, again, any, you know, any objective measure going to college is tremendous, tremendous lifelong benefits in terms of earnings. And I want kids, regardless of socioeconomic status or zip code or background, I want every young person to be saying, yes, I'm going to graduate from high school. I have to graduate from college, from high school. Then I have to think about some form of post-secondary education, get two-year, four-year trade, technical vocational training. Doesn't matter what, but what's the right fit for me? A, a high school diploma simply isn't enough anymore. That wasn't true 20 or 30 years ago. It often was enough. The jobs of the future, a high school diploma simply doesn't cut it. We have to raise aspirations and opportunity for, for every single young person. Yeah, definitely agree. And that is a cause I'll help you champion as much as possible. There's so many opportunities that I've you know just heard from people. They don't think that they are cut out for it. And it's just a simple case that they don't they don't know the avenue or the resources that are completely available to them to help them do it. So and the other thing, if you could help, again, so, so important with your audience is that, you know, all this stuff that we're talking about, income-based repayment, chances to consolidate loans, we do all that for free. Mm. And there are a bunch of sort of, I don't want to say shyster, but sort of shyster companies out there charging folks to do things that are absolutely for free. So please, folks could vi- visit uh, studentaid.gov, look at the options, look at the opportunities that are available, and you should not have to pay a nickel for these services. Yep. Same with scholarships as well. Scholarships yeah, shouldn't absolutely, cost absolutely. you any money. All this that. stuff is publicly available, readily available. And folks who are trying to sell you this, um, it, it's uh, it's pretty despicable. Definitely. And I'll have links to all those resources in the show notes so you guys can check them out. So uh, I read some statistic. I think it's called the Bennett Hypothesis, where I guess the, the idea is like for every $100 increase in student loan federally, there's $65 of a tuition increase. So what are your thoughts on that? How true is that in your experience? And what can we do to sort of stop the tuition hikes matching yeah. the uh, increases in aid? I'm not sure if that's exactly precise, but this stuff is complicated. So the fact is tuition is going up uh, too too much, too fast, too rapidly. So the couple different legs of this. Um, first, at the federal level, we need to be held accountable for continuing to provide grants and loans to make it more affordable. Secondly, one of the biggest drivers of college tuition going up is state disinvestment. And many states have walked away from their funding of higher education, which is a huge problem. When states decrease their funding, universities jack up their tuition. So states, and again, I, I don't blame state. I always blame us as voters, need to hold governors and others, you know, state legislators accountable. Are you investing in higher education? And with the tough economic times a couple of years ago, vast majority of states walked away. Some states have come back, but many, not enough states have. So state leaders have to be held accountable. Universities themselves have to do a better job of containing costs. Some universities are doing great things with technology that are reducing costs and, by the way, leading to better outcomes. 
which is fantastic, higher graduation rates. Um, and then finally, young people and their families need to inform themselves and make good choices. And ultimately, what I want to see is young people going to places that are serious about containing costs, but adding value and making sure they're graduating. So everyone has a role to play. We at the federal level, states have to do better. Universities must do better. And then ultimately, what I would love is if young people and their families are making good choices, then good actors get rewarded and bad actors lose customers. Now, right. force them to behavior. So it's, think about it as a four-legged stool, and we all have to hold ourselves mutually accountable and responsible for doing the right thing. Um, but college you know, is too expensive. Debt is too high. We've made some progress, but you know, am I satisfied? Are we in the right spot today? Absolutely not. And again, I want to focus not just on debt and the cost. I'm going to keep coming back into it. I, we have to focus on completion. We have to focus on success rates because ultimately that's the biggest determinant of folks' life chances you know, uh, beyond their college years. Right. Now, when you say that families should do their research and pick uh, you know, actors that are doing good, are you talking about on a university level or also on a state level? Should families be looking at states that are, are uh, it, you know, increasing their education budget as well? Yeah. So I guess two things on the state level for me, that's really a voting issue. Okay. And, and whether it's your know, parents or young people or grandparents or community, you know, and I could care less politics, you know, Republican, Democrat, I'm, I'm, you know, it's not my thing, but are these governors, be they Republican or Democrat, are they investing in higher education or are they cutting? And it's up to us as voters to hold them accountable. And I always say, there's no candidate I've ever heard that's anti-education. No one ever runs against education. <laughs> but not, not, not enough walk the walk. They all sort of talk the talk and give the sound bites and the photo ops. Right. So that, for me, is more of a voting issue. Um, in terms of the individual family choices, again, figuring out the right places, where financial aid is good, where they have good completion rates, where they have good support, where tuition isn't going up exponentially every single year. That's when young people can vote with their feet and families and make the right choice for the right reasons. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of, you know, finding ways to pay for college and saving money, one of the ways that I helped pay for my own education was working part time in school. And uh, I guess I'm just curious what your thoughts on that are versus taking on more coursework, staying like doing things like double majors or adding minors in. Yeah, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, I think you know the vast majority of us had you know had to work to help pay for college. Uh, my wife is still stunned by this. I actually helped clean the family's house for one one of my years in college. Was my <laughs> wife can't believe I didn't learn anything from that. <laughs> still, she still doubts me on that one. Um, but so I think we all have to. You know, the vast majority of folks have to work. I think that's a good thing. Mm. For me, it's hard to say we should do that or not take a double major because if again if you have that interest or ability to do a double major i'm not saying you should walk away from that it's trying to put all these pieces together in a way that works for the individual right. i think having those thoughtful conversations and the pros and cons and the trade-offs are um are really really important and again talking to upperclassmen talking to folks who have recently graduated to go through this by yourself it's it's overwhelming and whether it's you know, folks from your high school, whether it's upperclassmen in college, you know, alumni from those colleges, really getting some help and advice. And for me, that was so beneficial to have folks a little bit older than me who I could ask questions for. And I was totally lucky. You know, both my parents are college educated. I had lots of opportunity educate, you know, uh, coming in, but I still, it still can be overwhelming. So when I think about a first generation college goer or someone who's new to the country or someone who English is not their first language, the degree of difficulty goes up pretty exponentially. That's why, again, these relationships, I think, are so important to help you navigate the system. Definitely. And I'm glad that you mentioned alumni. Actually, I kind of want to do a little aside just to mention, like, if you're listening to this and you want to talk to somebody who's gone through the path 
that you're looking to go through, most schools have an alumni list. And also you can look on LinkedIn for people who graduated from your target school and just send them an email and say, you know, what worked for you? What programs at the school that, you know, you're going to go to were the best things that they did? Yeah. The other thing I push young people, it's interesting. Like I talked about 7,000 choices and huge diversity of all different kinds. But when you look at when they fill out the FAFSA form, financial aid form, how many schools people apply to, the majority of folks are actually only applying to one school, mm-hmm. which is a little stunning. And I, I didn't fully understand and appreciate that till I got here. And I get it. And sometimes people are confined, you know, usually by geography and life situation. If you're working a job, if you're raising a family, you're not going to move from California to Massachusetts to go to school. Um, but it's just so important to be, you know, try and look at two or three or four options. And if you really only have one option, I get it. But I think there are lots of young people who have more than one option, but they just sort of, because it's easier, I think, look at look at one and expanding that pool just to a couple more. You know, 10 is probably too many. <laughs> that's, you know, that's a lot. <laughs> but just, you know, two, three, four options and then give yourself the opportunity to really go back and forth on the pros and cons of all of them and figure out what's the best fit, you know, not for your friend, not for your brother, sister, not for your neighbor. What's the best fit for you? Right. Yeah. And I can attest that I just looked at one school, went to one tour and took it. And I personally don't regret the school I went to. I love it, but I definitely think I could have been a little bit more thorough in my research process. So just curious, why do you only look at one? That's interesting. Well, I, I grew up in uh, around Des Moines, Iowa and Ames, Iowa is where Iowa State University is. So I went and toured that. And I honestly, I loved it. And I figured I'd be close to home and, uh, you know, I could visit family without having to fly. So I took it. Um, I, you know, I had a bunch of other like lists and offers and all these mailers that came in and I just kind of ignored them. Yeah. Yeah. So it worked out for you, which is great. But Mm -hmm. again, I really do encourage people to just take, if you can take a couple more tours, you have virtual tours now, if you can't afford to go and really just see the, you know, you don't know what you haven't seen. So there's a big world out there really just, give you a chance to, 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 to be exposed to all this out there. And you might be surprised what the right, what the right fit is. Yeah, exactly. So actually, I, you know, I've got a couple of emails from people who are torn between two schools, one of them being the option they can afford and one of them being the option where they might need to take private loans out. But there might be one or two aspects that they think are better right now. So, I mean, do you have thoughts on perceived higher academic quality of a more expensive school versus just trying to make it work? Yeah. And again, I hesitate to give advice because this is so personal and everyone's you know, family situation and financial situation is so unique. Um, I do think that where you can, where you can go to the best school possible academically, I think there are real benefits from that. One thing we worry about here is something we call undermatching of hmm. kids who are very prepared academically, who have been successful, who may be financially more disadvantaged or be first generation college goers who aren't going to the best school possible. And again, if that if you graduate and that debt is manageable, the long-term benefits and dividends in terms of better job prospects, you know, better alumni networks, exposure to a world you didn't know existed, um, I wouldn't you know, reject that out of hand. And so that's going to be a stretch to say, you know, I can go to school for free versus take out loans for, you know, whatever, five grand, seven grand, whatever it might be each year. And uh, the snap decision may be, well, let's do it debt free. And I totally get that. I would just encourage people to think about going to the best school academically possible. What's interesting that often the the more rigorous academic schools actually have higher graduation rates for first generation college goers and Pell recipients. And so uh, that match, um, while it may seem more tougher academically, may be a better fit. And often your odds of graduating actually go up. 
And for me, again, that's the that's the real end goal here. Right. Great. Awesome. So I, I think a lot of these goals sort of came through in our conversation. But um, just to lay it out explicitly, what are your goals for my audience through doing this podcast? Uh, are there any specific actions you want them to take or things to consider? Uh, yes, they have to graduate from college. No choice. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. uh, in all seriousness, I mean, really, that that's our goal. And we're trying to do a ton around more access to early childhood education. We're trying to do a ton to increase high school graduation rates. And we're thrilled those are at all-time highs and dropout rates are down. But ultimately, we want to lead the world in college graduation rates. And we think that's the way to have strong families and strong communities and keep good jobs in this country. And right now, there are a lot of nations with higher college graduation rates than us. And so for me, it's you know what people can do for their own selves, uh, for their own lives and for their families but ultimately for the nation, um, if we could lead the world in college graduation rates, think what that would mean in terms of employees saying, I have to go to the United States because that's where the best educated workforce is. Mm. And so in all seriousness, having folks, you know, for all the you know complications and financial challenges, say my goal is not just high school graduation. My goal is not just to go to a college. My goal is to get that diploma and walk across that stage. Um, that's my, uh, my plea uh, to, to your audience. And again, hold us accountable, whatever we can do to provide better information, more transparency, try to get more resources. Please challenge us to be a, a really good partner. Great. So I know one of the things my readers are always interested in is to see how people got to where they were. So if you have a little bit of time, the way I like to kind of round this interview out is to ask, like, how do you get to be the secretary of education of the United <laughs> States? <laughs> What's your story, I guess, in a nutshell? That uh, was not my lifelong ambition, let me be clear. <laughs> I think when I was in college, I probably didn't even know what a secretary of education was. So <laughs> um, I've always had two passions. I loved kids in education and I loved basketball. Mm. So when I graduated from college. I played professional basketball for four years and was pretty lucky to have that opportunity. And the rest of my life, I've just worked in education. So I ran a small uh, nonprofit foundation that worked with kids in the inner city on the south side of Chicago, um, ran after school programs. Ultimately, the schools where our kids were going pretty horrific. So uh, my sister and I helped start a small public school in the neighborhood to better serve those kids. And uh, we, we loved doing that. But then ultimately, I decided that if I wanted to help more kids, I had to help change the, the public school system itself. So I went to go work for the Chicago public schools and ended up, which again, wasn't the goal, ended up leading the Chicago public schools for seven and a half years. And uh, so sort of the crazy thing happened that someone who I worked very closely with and was a friend I had tremendous respect for, President Obama, became president, which, you know, seven, eight years ago, none of us would have thought, you know, that could happen. It's sort of amazing. So to be real honest, I didn't come for the job or the title, um, didn't want to leave Chicago. That's where my, my heart was and my family. But I felt it was just a, a obviously just an amazing once in a lifetime opportunity to work for a president and uh, try and increase education opportunity for kids around the nation, take some of the lessons I've learned from you know, one little neighborhood in Chicago and ultimately the city, and try and help more kids around the country be successful. So it was uh, not a strategic uh, plan, <laughs> uh, not a lifelong ambition by any stretch, but I've always been more interested in who I'm working with than the jobs or the titles and having a, a boss who supports you and believes in you and where you share, share the same values. And uh, I still pinch myself some days. It's a little crazy to think that uh, <laughs> A kid from the South Side of Chicago has this opportunity. Yeah. Well, I mean, it definitely seems like you're incredibly passionate about education. I, I would guess that that's really the most important part of it. Uh, it is. And I just saw growing up kids from very poor families, from a very tough community, um, end up being extraordinarily successful in life. 
because they had strong educational opportunities. I just saw it literally as a life, a life changing, life transforming chance. And so that's my goal is just to help a lot more young people who may not be born with a silver spoon in their mouth um, have a chance to be successful in life. Right. And that reminds me, you built that uh, that school around the financial literacy curriculum. So what are your thoughts on like the lack of financial literacy education nationwide? Yeah, well, it's a big deal. And we've actually had uh, the, the president's had a, a, a task force around financial literacy. And the guy who was my best friend who helped fund the school is a businessman in Chicago named John Rogers of Huge Heart. And it was actually his it was my idea to start the school. It was his genius idea to say, let's have a financial literacy curriculum. Because at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do is not just educate, but you're trying to break cycles of poverty. Right. And if, you, if kids graduate, but they're still you know, living off their credit cards, they're still not saving, they're still not you know, building for their retirement, then you truly haven't ended cycles of poverty. And in communities like the one we're working on, where so few family members are working and where you know, retirement plans are unheard of, um, it's just a necessary language. So I think it's desperately needed. And you know, we actually started like in kindergarten and first grade. So we love that, you know, places are doing this at the high school level. I think like any skill, high school is good, but it's a little late. And <laughs> it's just so, you know, kids can pick up this stuff so easily and integrate it into the math curriculum. All of a sudden, guess what? Math gets much more interesting. We're talking about compound interest and other things. What's been fascinating is to see uh, students educating their parents about what their options are and how they should be thinking differently. So there's a big need out there. We've tried to do a lot to, to create a pilot or a model. The, the, the president's task force is trying to take some of these lessons to scale. You have more states moving this direction, but the absence of finan- the, the, or the financial illiteracy that is so pervasive, so prevalent in our nation, um, I think had, does a devastating damage to, to families and communities that are trying to get stronger. Yeah, completely agree. First grade is definitely the place to start. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the thoughtful questions and keep up the great work. Thank you. All right, guys, thanks so much for sticking around to the end of this interview. Like I said, if you want to find any of the links to the resources we mentioned in this conversation, you can find them over at CIGpodcast.com. The episode 75 link on the page will get you to all the things we mentioned. And if you have questions about the college experience, ranging from school selection all the way up to graduation, you can tweet me on Twitter. I'm at Tom Frankly or send me an email, Thomas at collegeinfogeek.com. Those questions help me figure out what to make. And I can also potentially point you to resources that already exist. So thanks for listening. I'll see you next week and stay cute.